And Lord willing, we'll work our way through verses 13 to 17 this week. So Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Before I read these verses, I'm going to ask a question. You can just answer it to yourself, but it's not a trick question. I'll just put that out in the beginning. I'm not trying to trick you. But um, <clears throat> the question is this, do you think Abraham is in heaven? If you think so, raise your hand. Again, it's not a trick question. Abraham's in heaven, okay? I would answer that question with a resounding yes. The reason we're confident about that is because we, of course, read the story about Abraham and See what we see in Romans chapter 4. And that Abraham was a justified man. And he had the forgiveness of sins and everything that we looked at last week. And the blessedness, just like David, of the one who, who has the forgiveness of sins and against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so we can be confident that, as Paul very clearly said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that would include then Abraham. And what you'll see in these verses, in verses 13 through 17, is that you, as the offspring of Abraham, by faith, can be as confident that you are going to heaven as you are confident that Abraham is in heaven. Because the promises to Abraham were to Abraham and to his offspring. And what Paul is arguing in chapter 4 is that by faith you are the offspring of Abraham even if you're a Gentile. It's that great mystery of the gospel, that it isn't just the physical descendants who are children of Abraham and therefore inheritors of all the promises, but also those who trust in Christ. This is a passage, friends, that can help us with the assurance of the guarantee of our salvation. Let's read verses 13 through 17, and then I'll pray as I usually do, and then we'll dive into the particular points. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, 
I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let's just pause and ask God's blessing on these verses. Now, Father, we come before you in the name of your son Jesus and clothed in his righteousness and and dwelt by your spirit. And we're asking that you would help us to understand these verses and their connection to the rest of Romans 4 and the whole book of Romans and, Lord, the whole Bible. So I pray that you would help me now as I teach and as I proclaim your truth that I would say what you're saying here and be accurate and truthful and preach it in power and love from the Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, let's first analyze for a few minutes that first verse there, verse 13. Make sure we sort of can wrap our minds around what Paul is saying. The word for, of course, at the beginning of that verse connects us to what he was just saying. In other words, he's not just coming up with something new here. That word for is very important with Paul. He's very logical. He very much makes connections to what he just said and kind of expands on what he, might, what he just said. And this is no exception. And if you remember, the whole context of what we're talking about here is the idea of what he said back in chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith. And then our key phrase there, apart from works of the law. And then he is using in chapter 4 the account of Abraham as an example of that. Saying that this isn't something new, that... Now, all of a sudden, people are justified by faith, whereas in the Old Testament, they were justified some other way. It's always been this way. It's always been by faith. It's always been by grace. And that's what he's demonstrating now, using the life of Abraham. But you'll notice that the way he phrases it in verse 13, he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Let's just stop right there. What is he talking about there? The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. And of course, as you can imagine, in a book like Romans, when you open up commentaries and other things, there are various interpretations of what he means by that, especially by heir of the world. What is he referring to here? Well, I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of where Paul is referencing the life of Abraham, and that, of course, is back in the book of Genesis, and you don't need to turn there if you don't want to, because I have these up on the screen, but look first at uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here first, there's this promise to make of him a great nation. The implication being through his offspring that was to come that hadn't arrived yet. Okay? Through him and his wife, Sarai at the time, uh, to become Sarah. 
So some time goes by, and then God shows up to Abraham again in chapter 15 with these words. He brought him, uh, well, actually put it up there. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram, now remember, keeping in what had been promised to him in 12, said this, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, the one who would inherit all of the things that I have would be this servant of mine, essentially. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. I love this, by the way. So the idea in the writing here of the Hebrew is uh, always poetic and, and rich. And it's literally saying to you, it's saying to the reader, look, behold now, the word of the Lord came to him in response to what he just said. I have no heir. You've promised to make me a great nation and bless me, make my name great. And in me, all the families of the earth be blessed. That hasn't happened. And he brought him outside. The Lord brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And there's a promise. Then two chapters in your Bible, but some time goes by until Genesis 17. And behold, no child. Now look at chapter 17. Verses 4 and 5, where the Lord says to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. And in this context, what is it? It's a multitude of people or even nations. Not just one, but the father of many nations. Now, in chapter 4 and verse 17, in the last chapter 4 of Romans, in, in verse 17, that last promise in verse 17 is quoted, I have made you the father of many nations. So I think if we go back up to verse 13, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring is essentially, first and foremost, the idea that he would have a child and through that child, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his descendant who would be Isaac and then Jacob renamed Israel and then the descendants of uh, Israel, which is the nation of Israel, and through them comes Jesus, who is, according to Paul in Galatians 3, that promise, final promise offspring, in whom all these promises are going to be fulfilled. And he would be the heir of nations that would come from him. And I'm just going to depart here from my notes for a second and say this, because I plan to spend more time with this next week. But the fact that we are here and we are mainly Gentiles, 
non-Jewish people from other nations, is what that is, is proof that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Do you see that? Because isn't it what he says? End of verse 16, the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, That means me and you as well, everybody in Rome, whether they were Jew or Gentile, he's the father of us all. And then he says, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. That becomes incredibly important to understand the implications of that for what we're talking about here. The very fact is that the promises God made to Abraham were to him and to his offspring, which... You are if you are trusting in Christ. That's powerful. That's one of the ways, friends, you can be as certain of your salvation as you were of Abraham's. Because it wasn't just to him. But Paul's main point in verse 13, again, I think we'll address that a little bit more next week and just the awesomeness of what it is to be children of Abraham by faith. But notice in verse 13 again, now in chapter 4, the main point he's driving at here. We don't want to get lost in the main point. I want the main point to be the main point this morning. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law. What's his main point? The promise that he gave didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay? What's he referring to here? It's this. It's that God didn't show up to Abraham when he was, and make this promise and say, if you obey the law, or if you keep the law a certain way, and you earn righteousness by the law, then based on that righteousness, I'll fulfill my promises to you. That's not the way it was put. Because friends, as Paul makes a big deal about in the letter, his letter to the Galatians, when, when, when Genesis happened, and when Abraham was given these promises, and when he believed God, friends, the law wasn't in existence yet. Do a little Bible chronology with me. How does this work out? So you have the first book is Genesis. In the book of Genesis, you have the account of Abraham. Okay? What book of the Bible does the law appear in? Exodus. Again, not a trick question, right? Genesis comes before Exodus on purpose in the plan of God, by the way. No law here. So that God can show everyone that these promises were delivered all of grace and to be received entirely by faith without any mixture of the law securing the promise. Abraham in Genesis 15 was justified before circumcision and before the law. And the promises come in what way? Through what? Look at verse 13 again. Not through the law, 
but through the righteousness of faith. How are the fulfillments of the promises going to come? Not through Abraham obeying the law. They're going to flow to Abraham through the channel. They're going to be received by the channel of faith. Simply that what we read in Genesis 15 and what Paul's already talked about in Romans 4, that God made the promise. Abraham looks up at the stars and he believes God and God credits it to him as righteousness, which guaranteed and secured once and for all for Abraham that all the promises of God would be fulfilled to him and for him. And friends, the reason I'm parking on this so long is because Paul's main point to the Roman church is that just as all those saving promises and blessings to Abraham flow by faith alone, it's the same for you. It isn't as though now you're justified and you receive the blessings of God and somehow those are contingent though upon a certain way in which you keep God's law. Think about this. When you witness to people, what essentially do you do just naturally as a Christian in order to try to convince them that they need to be saved and then, but more than that, how to be saved? So let's say somebody says to you, how to become a Christian. Friends, do you open up the Ten Commandments and say, you want to be a Christian? You want eternal life? do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this, do this, don't do that. Do you recite to them John 3, 16 and say, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him and keeps the law will not perish but have eternal life. If you are doing that, you're doing it wrong. It's because we, almost without thinking about it, Understand that the saving promises are delivered to us, friends, by faith alone. Through the righteousness of faith, not from the law or good works. Remember what we talked about last week when we quoted from Martin Luther who said, we're not arguing that the law shouldn't be done or that good works shouldn't be performed. That's not what we're arguing But he said, we'll talk about that at some other time. Because now we're talking about how one is made right with God. And when you're doing that, the works, the law, don't even come into play. The only time we would use the law in evangelizing is to show Paul's point in verses 14 and 15. And here's the real problem, right, with the law as a means of righteousness or a means of thinking that Now that I'm saved, I got to keep the law in order to secure these promises coming at me. In order to get to heaven, right? The problem is in verses 14 and 15. Paul says, for if the adherents of the law, if it is the adherents of the law are to be heirs, that has received the fullness of the promises of God in our, as we're using it, then faith is null and the promise is void. Why? Verse 15, for the law brings wrath. The problem with the law, friends, isn't that the law isn't good. It is. It's wonderful. It's righteous, and it comes from God, and we should love it and apply it into our lives. 
But the problem with the law is with us. Our inability to keep it. Remember, we spent so much time in Romans 1 through 3 just saying we're sinners by our very nature. And therefore, the law in getting to God and making it to heaven is not helpful to us. So when you're evangelizing to somebody, the reason you would use the law is to prove to them you're a sinner under the wrath of God, right? Anybody familiar with the way of the master? This is one way they approach evangelism. They will say to somebody, why do you think you're going to heaven? And it's so easy to do that because the answer is always usually the same if they believe there even is a heaven. They say, well, I'm, you know, I'm pretty good. I, I try to do this and I don't do that and I do good works and whatever it is. And, and he'll say, well, have you, ever, have you ever looked at someone with lust in your heart? And they'll say, well, yeah, haven't we all? And he'll say something to the effect of, well, then you, Jesus said you've committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah. Well, you, it's one of the Ten Commandments, you've lied. And he said, well, so far now you're a, you're a liar and a, an adulterer, and he just keeps going on in the list, and then he says, now do you think you can go to heaven based on your own merit? And the answer, of course, is always, they always have to come to the conclusion, if they're looking at the Bible, is no, I can't. So then you need to be saved from the law, because the law brings wrath. That's the problem with it. And friends, it isn't just at the beginning of our salvation like to get into this status of right relationship with God that we just is by faith and then we pick it up from there. That's not the way it works. It's through the entire time that even when we're doing good, we can never mix this and think that somehow that is contributing to our right standing before God. What we will find out in upcoming chapters and in upcoming studies and sermons is that your obedience to God and the keeping of the law, that's just the outflow of what God has done in you. That's the result of justification, not its basis. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, and he's dealing with people who think you've got to keep on keeping the law in order to finally make it to heaven. And he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written in Deuteronomy, nonetheless, in the law, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, you can't just pick and choose from the law what you think is important, if that's going to be your means of getting right with God, I'm going to pick and choose what I like, and, what, and I'm going to really pursue that. You've got to take the whole thing upon yourself, and you've got to live by it. And the only standard that God accepts of righteousness by the law is perfect, perfect righteousness. And he says it's not of faith because the person who's doing that is not trusting entirely in Jesus. He or she is relying on himself or herself. So the law brings wrath because we can't completely obey it. So if our righteousness or the promise of eternal life and heaven and the blessings of God rely on our law keeping, then we are sunk. Friends, would you feel comfortable if God said to you today, here's heaven, here's glory. I'll give it to you. It's yours. You can inherit heaven 
if for this day, this one day, you can keep my law from your heart perfectly and entirely, which means in a nutshell, you love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind every millisecond, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Would anybody feel comfortable with that arrangement? Like any part of your eternity hinging on your obedience to God's holy law, knowing your own heart and mind, knowing how quickly you can drift? Now, the very fact that sometimes we can come into a worship service to worship the eternal, holy, triune God who saved us and we're commanded to love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and might and mind. And though our very minds are thinking about lesser things that don't matter. Or the fun things we're going to do later. Or how our favorite football team's going to do today. And even in that. You're failing to keep the law with your whole heart. If our salvation is contingent on our ability to keep God's law to any degree, at any part, at any point, you're sunk. But thankfully, it's not contingent on that at all. That's Paul's main point. Look at verse 15 and 16 again. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law... There is no transgression. What does he mean? There's no sin? No, there's always been sin. Paul will talk about that in Romans 5. There's always been sin. From Adam and Eve on, there's been sin, but there's no law as a means of righteousness. Like with Abraham, blessings come to him, promise comes to him. He believes there is no law. And did you know for you, Christian, because of what Christ has done, the law has come to an end for you as a means of righteousness. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 10 verse 4 says that very thing. I have the slide, but I think I'm jumping ahead of myself in my notes and that's okay. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. means like this. You come to Christ, saving faith in Christ, you receive all the righteousness that you will ever need to inherit all of the promises of God for you all the righteousness you need has come now by faith when you trust in Christ. And in that sense, you leave the law behind. You don't look to Christ in faith for the righteousness you need and the promise of eternal life and then say, okay, and the law. Come on, law, help me out here. Help me keep going with this. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And the righteousness he's talking about is the righteousness that you need to get to heaven. Now, the law will play a part in our lives, a very good part in our lives, but it isn't to get you to heaven. You can't keep it enough to earn enough righteousness in order to get into heaven. That's not how God saves us. He holds out a promise. And the promise is received by faith, and then the blessings of that promise flow from, the channel, from God through the channel of faith right into your life. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16, listen to this good news, please. That is why it depends on faith. Faith alone. 
apart from the works of the law. In order that the promise may rest on what? Grace. What is the promise of God to Abraham, to you, to everyone else who is in Christ? What is the promise rest on? Your performance? Nope. It rests on now the grace of God to you. And be guaranteed to all his offspring. Don't you love that word? I love that word. Be guaranteed now to all his offspring. That teaches us, friends, that you can't blow it, right? Let's say you come to faith in Christ. You're born again. You're happy as can be. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven. And then all of a sudden, the question pops in your mind. Can I blow this, though? I mean... Could I ruin this through my sin? What if I transgress the law? What if I, what if I never fully conquer that besetting sin of mine? I mean, in a way where it's completely gone. What if I fail to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and my neighbors, myself? Wow, maybe then I would lose this wonderful status and lose this blessing. And Paul says, that's not even possible. Because, friends, the promise and the blessings that flow to you from Christ never depended on your performance. Never depended on the law or your ability to keep it. It depends on grace in that way. In that way, from the moment you trust in Christ on, it's guaranteed to you. Can never be lost. Salvation to those in Christ is guaranteed. This is why Paul can so confidently in Romans 8.1 say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Not even possible. So every verse in your mind right now that you're thinking, well, that verse sounds like I could lose my salvation. No, it doesn't. And no, you can't. Because that would imply that to some degree, your salvation depended on you. And it doesn't. If that verse you're thinking of taught you that you have to keep the law to a certain standard, or not commit a certain sin, or be holy enough or good enough to get yourself out of this condition, then I guess maybe it'd be true, but no scripture can teach that. Because the entire gospel comes to us saying that none of this depends on you. And the reason, the main reason it doesn't, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 is really good, where Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, it was Christ Jesus who came and was born under the law for you, so that the righteousness you needed to obey the law, he did for you. 
and all of your violations of the law and the wrath that it, it incurred, he bore for you on the cross, you see. And then he was, he was crucified, he was buried, and he was rose again, uh, arisen again for our justification. So that once for all, friends, the guarantee, it's resting on Christ. That's why you're trusting him, right? Guaranteed to all his offspring. Friends, if you are trusting in Christ now, all of the saving promises and the gospel and the blessings are yours in Christ. You can have the full assurance of faith that you will be fully and finally saved. Do you know what the, the Roman Catholic Church says, calls what I just said? The sin of what? Any former Catholics here or present Catholics? Uh, the sin of presumption. To presume upon future grace? Well, that's not, that's not feasible. The reason is, is because to some degree in the Catholic religion, your salvation depends on what you do. And your keeping of the law and the sacraments and other things and the good works and all of the meritorious works that contribute to your progression in justification. But friends, it amazes me because when I read through the New Testament, what God wants is his people to be certain. He wants his people to be certain of his love, of his everlasting love for them. He wants them to be certain of his, their salvation. There is certainty in it. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 teaches this kind of certainty. We know that for those who love God... All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, listen, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a done deal in the mind of God. This is why John will write in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And one last thing in verse 17 of, of chapter 4 of Romans. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. Listen, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Why would that be there? Why is that here? Friends, you like Abraham are trusting in the one who has the power to do what he's promised to do. Now for Abraham that was give a child when Abraham was a hundred years old and Sarah was over 90 years old. The deadness Paul refers to here in chapter 4 of their bodies in her womb well beyond child-rearing years. And he believed that God could do what he promised to do because this was the God, and this is why I think he had Abraham look at the stars now. I want you to look at my creation. I want you to see it. Who could have done this, Abraham? Abraham? Who could have 
placed the billions of stars in the sky, only me. Who brought these into existence? Only me. Who's the one, Abraham, who gives life to the dead? Who's the only one who can do this? Only me. Who can call into existence the things that do not exist? That's what all of Genesis 1 is. God speaks, and it was. God speaks, things exist that didn't exist. To show us, friends, that everything that needed to be done for you in salvation, everything that will need to be done for you in salvation is going to come to pass even against all odds. We'll look at this probably in a week or two in the rest of chapter four. Against everything you see, against everything you feel, the impossibility of salvation you make into the kingdom, God brings it to pass with his own power. That's the understanding. You can trust him to do for you what he has promised to do, namely save you from your sins. And I love this in 1 Peter 5, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance now that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, listen, by God's power, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not contingent on you. Your salvation, you, you're being guarded by God's power, preserved all the way to the end. This is why, friends, we can trust. And there's such rest in this. Jesus, you promised to save me from my sins. You have promised to bring me into your eternal presence and I'm going to trust you for that. And I'm not going to look to myself and I'm not going to rely upon my own works and I'm not going to rely upon anything other than you now to do what you have called me to do. And friends, that is really the essence of saving faith. For those who do that, we can be guaranteed And all of the blessings of the gospel will flow to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for assurance. Thank you for guarantees of salvation to sinful people who even though we're Christians just can't seem to get our act together sometimes. I pray for anyone in this room, God, who is uncertain about these things. That your spirit would testify with their spirit that they are indeed children of God and that it would bring rest to their souls. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.